Well, Ray Kurzweil, it is a pleasure to meet you here in Louisville in November 2012 at the University of Louisville Kentucky Author Forum. It's, uh, it's great to be here. It's always a pleasure in my life to meet people who think as deeply and uh, with such concern about issues that matter to us all. So, thank you. Um, you have a, a long history of futurism, making predictions. In fact, you have a long history when it comes to that. You, and I, I, I want to talk about the new book, How to Create a Mind, and I'm sure that we will go through a lot of the detail on that. But I'm, I'm curious about who you are first. I was fascinated to... I, I was hoping uh, you would tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping we're going to find out. I saw on television, for instance, on YouTube, which is another example of the ways in which technology has changed. I saw you with a machine and Steve Allen, yeah. I think, on the Today Show. It was, I've got a secret. Probably before <laughs> most people's time here. Uh, this was back when there were only three networks. And this was a quiz show. Someone would reveal a secret to the audience, and then this panel of guest celebrities would, would ask yes or no questions and try to get the secret. So you were standing there with your machine, and we should talk about that. But, and did they guess? Well, I started out by playing a piece of music, and then part of my secret was uh, I built, invented and built my own computer. And Steve Allen said, well, that's impressive. What does that have to do with the music? And I said, well, the computer composed the music. And uh, Bess Meyerson, who was uh, Miss America, uh, was stumped. But then Henry Morgan, a famous actor at the <laughs> time, was able, to actually, was able to guess it. Yeah. Henry Morgan got a lot of those, didn't he? Yeah, he was a pretty sharp guy. Yeah. So, but you were even younger when you began having an interest in this, I think. Well, I... I did have the idea of becoming an inventor when I was five. My parents were really into giving me lots of enrichment toys. These are toys that have lots of pieces to them, like erector sets. And, and I would take them apart, and I created this one big inventory. I had lots of different pieces. And then I would go through the neighborhood, bring back old radios and old broken bicycles, and take them apart and add to my inventory. This was an era where you would let a five-year-old go through the neighborhood and bring back <laughs> strange things. Um, and I had this idea, if I could just figure out how to put these things together in the right way, in the right combination, I could solve any problem. I could create transcendent effects. I didn't have that vocabulary when I was five. Yeah. Uh, I came up with that recently. But, <laughs> um, I did have this magical idea that there, that there was a combination of these things that would kind of solve any problem. And it did... Uh, I didn't realize that at the time, but I began to realize that this was really the philosophy of, philosophy of my family, which is the power of human ideas. I, I do remember at age seven, my grandfather coming back from his first trip to Europe after fleeing Hitler in 1938. Yeah. So this was now 55. And he described in reverential terms the opportunity to handle himself some original documents of Leonardo da Vinci. So these were sacred documents, but they weren't handed down from God. They were created by a person and were able to change the world. And this was kind of the philosophy, that humans can have ideas and they can change the world. And it was personalized. You, Ray, can change the world with ideas. And they're not easy to find, but you can find them. And that, that was kind of a mission I had. 
other kids were wondering what they were going to be, uh, a fireman, uh, a teacher. I always had this conceit, I know what I'm going to be. Things haven't changed that much for you, have you? No, I started pursuing doing, the same philosophy. I started doing projects, and one project led to another, and I'm still doing them, I'm still trying to Just out of curiosity, what was that first, other than trying to solve the world's problems, what was that first invention? Well, the first project was to build a rocket ship, and... I actually succeed, well, I succeeded in a number of aspects of it, including the body of the rocket and the tail uh, and the nose cone. I just needed to figure out how the propulsion system would work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got everything else. Uh, age seven or eight, actually, I, I got a little more traction. I developed a, it was a puppet theater, but it was kind of a virtual reality world. And I had this command station, and it was very important that it be one box with, from which I could control the world. And I could move onto the stage clouds and stars and trees and people, and then I, I could articulate their limbs. And I was the master of this virtual world from my control station using mechanical linkages. And I brought that to school, and the teacher thought it was kind of cool. Some of your critics today might be very interested to know this story about how you thought you could control the world, but we'll leave that <laughs> for now. And the, the good thing about these stories from when you were young is that, that you had success, and, and one thing leads to another. I mean, you're talking about the 1950s, really, yeah. when you were doing this, and since so much of the two recent books, Singularity is Near and How to Create a Mind, are about the acceleration of development, the, the things that have changed in yours and my lifetime, because we're about the same age. Well, it, this is something I've really tried to, to quantify, uh, because I realized 30 years ago, so this is 1981, uh, that the key to being successful as inventor is not just getting your gadgets to work, but actually doing things at the right time. So Larry Page and Sergey Brin had a great idea about reverse engineering the links on the internet to create a better search engine, but they did it at exactly the right time. These are the guys who created Google. Google. Yeah. And all the inventors you've heard of did that. Uh, the ones you haven't heard of might have gotten their inventions to work also, but they were kind of at the wrong time. Uh, why did, search why did uh, social networks take off with Zuckerberg? It's not just that he had a great idea. There were social networks before that. They were struggling, well, can we really allow people to download a picture? Because computers just weren't powerful enough. That's one of my points, is that when price performance reaches certain levels, whole new applications explode. And your project has to make sense for the world that exists when you finish the project, which is, could be a few years later. And even in 1981, I realized that that could be a completely different world than the world you started with. Think about the world today and go back three or four years ago. People didn't use social networks. There's now a billion people on Facebook alone. Uh, wikis, like Wikipedia, blogs. These, these were not used like four years ago. Well, so, the, and the big thing, it seems to me, is that we forget so quickly how far we've come. In the 1950s, Making a rocket ship was huge. We think of that as, as something any kid can do now. It is amazing. You know, you talk, I mean, I've been making predictions, and people think many of them are incredible or ridiculous. 
Then when they happen, people just shrug their shoulders. Oh, a computer that can play Jeopardy, and which is a natural language game, and defeat the best players? Well, of course, computers can do that. I mean, <laughs> uh, I can ask my, my own cell phone a question about anything, and uh, in fact, people are very often just re react as to how many times it makes mistakes, which reminds me of the joke about this woman whose dog plays chess, and uh, people say, aren't you amazed that your dog plays chess? And she goes, yeah, it's pretty amazing, but uh, his end game is weak. So, uh, <laughs> people get used to new, that's how technology evolves. Things get introduced, they don't really work perfectly, or they may not work well at all. People go, yeah, it's pretty amazing, but it doesn't really work. Then a few years later, it works great, and people go, oh, it's not so amazing. That's been around for years. And, um, so when I use the FIDO defense, the next time I play chess, I should feel yeah. good about that. So people, it is amazing how people lose perspective. We assume that, well, social networks, Wikipedia, these have been around forever. In fact, when, uh, when these things were unavailable for one day during this open strike, I felt like part of my brain had gone on strike. It was like, no, it can't be to go, go a whole day without these resources. We didn't have them just a few years ago. Yeah, but I did hear you say in another talk that you found a way around that strike. So, Yeah, th there were some workarounds that you could actually access them anyway. But even just the threat right. of it was, was pretty amazing. Right. And it shows two things. It shows how dependent we've become on these brain extenders. They are part of who we are. They're part of our intelligence. And also shows the political power of organized social communication. I mean, all these social networks and participatory sites, you know, like Wikipedia, were nominally unavailable. These, most people couldn't access them. And uh, it killed this legislation, which was going towards uh, bipartisan passage. It's one of the few things that both Republicans and Democrats agreed on. Uh, but the community of uh, people who shared knowledge on, on sites like Wikipedia thought it was a threat and killed it in hours. So it's a tremendous demonstration of the political power of organized communication. So did you see this coming? I guess what I'm, what I'm really curious about is you, you've been an interested inventor and you have had a lot of success. Looking at it, do you see a kind of line through your own inventive process? Well, I mean, I, I do have this basic principle, which I call the law of accelerating returns. That's what the book Singularity is Near is about that there's a remarkable trajectory which belies the common wisdom that you cannot predict the future. You really can predict certain things, which is the fundamental measures of information technology, like the power of computing per constant dollar, calculations per second per constant dollar. That's a very smooth trajectory going back to the 1890 census. And it's true of actually every fundamental measure of every information technology. And what's uh, predictable is that they grow exponentially, not linearly. And exponential growth is not intuitive because our intuition about the future is linear. Uh, that's hardwired in our brains. When we walked through the fields a thousand years ago, we said, okay, that animal's walking that way, I'm walking this way, we're going to meet up by that rock, I'm going to go a different way. So that it proved to be useful for survival uh, to predict the future. In fact, that's why we have a brain, is to predict the future. And, and be able to anticipate what's going to happen or the consequences of my own actions or inaction and do something about it. Uh, but that, those predictors are linear. We assume the animal will go at the same pace. 
that worked great for the kinds of challenges we had a thousand years ago when our brains evolved. It doesn't describe the trajectory of information technology. And just, uh, it's an important point, so just to illustrate how different it is, a linear progression, that's our intuition, goes one, two, three, four, five, and at step 30, you're at 30. An exponential trajectory goes two, four, eight, 16, doesn't sound that different, except at step 30, you're at a billion. And so as you go out in time, it makes a huge difference, and that's what we've seen. I mean, this is several billion times more powerful per dollar than the computer I used when I was a student, yeah. and we'll do it again in 25 years. And it turns out to be very predictable and, and quite profound in terms of its implications. I don't want to dwell on this forever, but I think each of us reading about the law of accelerating returns wondered whether it is, in fact, exponential or whether it consists of jumps. Uh, can you predict, is it... Two, four, eight, sixteen. When it comes, for example, the power of computation uh, per constant dollar, or measures like the number of bits we're moving around wirelessly in the world, or the number of bits we're moving around on the internet, or the cost of sequencing a base pair of DNA, or sequencing a, a human genome, it's amazingly smooth. You can take data points every year, or even more often, and you just see this very smooth exponential trajectory. The fundamental reason for it is that we, you know, we are creating now the computers of 2013 and 2014 using the computers and information technology of 2012. We couldn't do that in 2002 because we didn't have the computers of 2012. And we're always using the latest tools to create the next, and it progresses in this exponential. But the manner. job of a futurist is to try to anticipate what the computers five years from now will be. Well, in terms of these basic measures, these quantitative measures, like how many, you know, what will the number of calculations per second of the fastest supercomputer be? That's another fundamental measure. That follows a very smooth trajectory. I, I did a paper recently. You can look it up by Googling how my predictions are faring. You can also throw in Kurzweil, but you'll, you'll get that paper. It's a 150-page paper. Uh, the reviews all of my predictions in the last 30 years. So, for example, I made 147 predictions in the book Age of Spiritual Machines, which I wrote in the 90s, about 2009. 86% were correct. Uh, some, these were by decades. Some were off by like a year. Uh, but 86% were essentially correct. Uh, the rest were actually fairly close, too. Like one that was wrong is that we'll have self-driving cars. And people say, well, we do have self-driving cars. The Google cars actually work quite well, but they're not available to the common person, so that was wrong. The ones that were most accurate is ones which, which were quantitative, like supercomputers in 2009 will do 10 to the 13th calculations per second, those kinds of predictions. So as long as it's accurate. computational, you can be pretty accurate. Or some kind of quantitative measure of an information technology. But it could be things like biological technologies or the spatial resolution of brain scanning. I mean, it applies. It's not just computers. It's not just Moore's Law. Moore's Law is really just one example of this broader phenomenon of the law of accelerating returns. Remind me what Moore's Law is. Well, Moore's Law is that we're shrinking transistor sizes on chips. So we can, in fact, squeeze twice as many transistors every two years on a chip. They run faster because they're smaller, so the electrons have less distance to travel. 
So we roughly double the price performance of electronics and computers every year uh, through this phenomena of basically making everything smaller every year on chips. Um, but the exponential growth of computers, for example, started decades before Gordon Moore was even born. Uh, Moore's law, that paradigm was the fifth paradigm, not the first, to bring exponential growth to computing. For example, they were shrinking the sizes of vacuum tubes in the 1950s. Uh, CBS predicted the election of Eisenhower in 1952 using a vacuum tube-based computer. Uh, remember that? <laughs> uh, and as I remember, they didn't want to release the results because they were afraid people would think a machine couldn't possibly know. So, so you do remember it. Uh, <laughs> um, 52, I was actually four years old. So yeah. I'm not sure I remember it. But, I was three, uh, but I've heard about it. <laughs> um, so that had nothing to do with Moore's Law. There were no chips. Finally, they got to a point where these... Uh, tubes were so small they couldn't shrink them anymore. And that was the end of the shrinking of tube sizes. But, well, and this is an interesting but thing. But it didn't, it didn't end the ongoing progression of computers. It just went to another method. Well, I guess that's the answer to the question I'm about to ask, so I'll ask you to say it again after I've asked the question. The, um, we hear constantly they can't get any smaller. There is no way that the computer chips can be any smaller than they are now. But that, the fact that that's not true is essential to your study of uh, the future. Well, I examined that in detail in The Singularities Neo, which is my 2005 book. I touch on it again in this new book. Uh, Gordon Moore originally predicted the end of Moore's Law in 2002. Intel now says 2022. By that time, the key features sizes of transistors will be four nanometers. That's about the width of 20 carbon atoms. And I agree we won't be able to shrink them anymore. So we'll then go to the next paradigm, the sixth paradigm. And that's computing in three dimensions. I mean, chips are flat. It's one layer of circuitry. We're going to go into the third dimension. Our brains are organized in three dimensions. And that sixth paradigm has already started. If you visit Intel, Justin Ratner, the chief technology officer, will show you chips that are working in three dimensions. There are some memory chips now that are already beginning to use the third dimension. Uh, that will keep this law of accelerating returns going well into the 21st century at a point where chips or cubes will be trillions of times more powerful than the human brain, say. What's, what's behind all of this, it strikes me, as, as we have this conversation, is that you can never just work on the computation, though. You always have to be, you, you have to have some kind of three-dimensional thought to get to the next paradigm. You always have to be thinking past what the next uh, progression of technology will be. And I guess what you're getting at is, is the why, uh, the mind behind it. Well, uh... You're actually raising several interesting issue. where, where, issues. Where do these new paradigms come from? Uh, the reality is, as we can see the end of the line for one paradigm, it creates research pressure to create the next. Uh, there's, a, there's a desire, and I think it's a basic human trait, to expand capabilities in multiples. Uh, you know, if we've got 1,000 transistors on a chip, we don't try to add two more transistors. We try to make it 2,000, not 1,002. Uh, that's true of every kind of measure uh, of these technologies. But in terms of qualitative uh, advances, some pe one line of criticism is, okay, Kurzweil is right with regard to 
hardware power, but software stuck in the mud. And I address that at length in both Singularities Near and How to Create a Mind. Just one example, the advisory group to President Obama, Scientific Advisory Board, examined this question, how much advance have we gotten in hardware versus software, in the sophistication of software? And they looked at something like 20 different major scientific and engineering problem areas. So one is, has a technical name, linear programming. It's a technique I believe is used in the brain. It's used in a lot of artificial intelligence. I talk about it in the book. Uh, that has progressed over the last 15 years by 1,000 to 1 in terms of hardware power, 45,000 to 1 in terms of software capability, more sophisticated algorithms and more intelligent software um, for a total of 45 million to 1 because you multiply the two. But the point is it's actually more progress in software than hardware, and they found that in just about every area. And then we see these visceral examples of intelligent machines like Watson playing Jeopardy and getting a higher score than the best two humans put together, uh, the Google cars driving, which I predicted that 10, 15 years ago and people thought that was crazy. I actually mocked it wrong because uh, it's not available yet to the common person, but I've talked to people who've ridden in them and they quickly get more confidence in the AI driver than human drivers, which may not be saying much. But... It actually doesn't bother you. <laughs> Some of the drivers today. Doesn't bother you much to be off by a year or two, does it? You think in big terms. Well, I mean, the, I am trying to describe where technology and humanity is, is headed. Um, well, let's shift the conversation then. And my critics are not saying, oh, well, Kurzweil says that uh, computers will pass the Turing test in 2029. That's ridiculous. It won't be till 2030. Uh, I mean, they're, they're Actually, saying I think I'm one or two by... of them may have said that, but that's okay. <laughs> but I'm, I think that uh, we've reached a point in technology now where we can expect those advances to continue. Your law of accelerating returns has led us to a level of expectation with the technology that allows a kind of uh, effort in software. Well, maybe. Uh... I would say more people accept it than used to. Um, I'd say the, I mean, I talked to lots of different audiences. The one I found actually most receptive were these middle school kids, 12 and 13 year olds. These were winners from around the country that went invited to the special week, uh, an opportunity to hear different uh, thinkers. Uh, and they were coming up to me afterwards saying, oh, that's so true. Things were so different when I was eight. <laughs> <laughs> but ironically, people who have been around, you know, who are 50 and have been around for decades, uh, very often have no imagination, think that nothing's going to change ever again. I, I did note that when you were talking in the book about some of your critics, you had a tendency to note their birth dates, which... Uh... <laughs> may have something to do with the way they react. And uh, days they passed the scene if they're, if they're no longer with us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. well, that makes a difference. I'm, uh, the, the, the essence of how to create a mind is the study that you've done. It, it's built out of a lot of the work that you have done on speech recognition and on um, it, it, its optics to speech. Character uh, recognition. Character yeah. recognition. You've made a big leap from that into a study of how the mind actually works? Or, or, or do you not see it as a big 
Lee. Well, I've, I mean, I've done work in natural language understanding, too. Uh, that's a more expansive area, since if you, uh, one of my main points in how to create a mind is that our thinking is hierarchical. We think in hierarchies. Just recognizing what someone has said or what characters are involves some hierarchy, but only three or four le levels. When you get to language, uh, the levels are indefinite. You're, you're definitely talking about dozens of levels. I mean, just look at an ordinary sentence, and there's many different levels of, of abstraction. And concepts that we take for granted are related to each other in a hierarchy, and, and that hierarchy has many different levels. I mean, uh, as a great example, look at a, a sentence in a uh, Garcia, a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel, uh, which can go on for six pages, and they're valid sentences. And there is in here a quote them, from Hundred Years have, of Solitude, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's, so it's a great example of the sort of hierarchical nature of language and of human thought. But that is the key. We think, we think in terms of hierarchies. And is language the way into the study of the mind then? Well, one way into the study of the mind is to, is to examine what the mind does. I mean, that's one laboratory. And, and I have some thought experiments that illustrate certain aspects of our thinking. But language was our, spoken language was our first invention, and then written language was the second. And it enabled us to take our hierarchical thoughts and represent them while preserving the hierarchy and communicate them from one brain to another. Our brains are organized very differently. They have the same basic principles, but the, this hierarchy that I'm mentioning from very low-level concepts like uh, recognizing the crossbar in a capital A, that's a low-level concept, up to, oh, she's pretty. That was ironic. That, those are high-level concepts. Uh, there's a whole kind of tree-like hierarchy from low-level to high-level. We're not born with that. We create that hierarchy through our own thoughts. So the subtitle is The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. That is the secret, that we're able to actually create that hierarchy. So I have a one-year-old grandson now, and I'm watching him lay down early levels of, of this conceptual hierarchy. He's got a few under his belt at this point. Uh, we're born, or we actually, our brain starts functioning even before that. Our eyes open at 26 weeks uh, in gestation and... So the brain is beginning, the neocortex is beginning to create this hierarchy right when it's created. Um, and we have 300 million pattern recognizers which build themselves into this grand hierarchy. So we all have a, a different hierarchy in that we've, we've built it. Your brain creates your thoughts, but your thoughts create your brain. In term, and we can actually see that in brain scans. Uh, so you very much are what you think. Uh, but language was a universal method where even though we have different neocortexes, we can share an idea uh, in language. And so that was our first invention. Well, and when you're trying to figure out how the mind works, you have to find some kind of structure that you can use to examine it. Uh, language is a way in. And then you mentioned a moment ago pattern recognition. Pattern recognition of mind is the other, the PRTM. Yep. I mean, that's uh, what this new book, the How to Create a Mind, is about, yeah. how the human brain works, particularly the neocortex. So the neocortex is an interesting history. Before mammals, uh, animals were not able to think in hierarchies. So they could learn fixed skills, and they had certain behaviors that were programmed. They could change that behavior, but not in the course of a lifetime. 
They could evolve, use biological evolution to change their behavior over maybe thousands of lifetimes. So over tens of thousands of years, they could gradually adapt their behaviors. That was fine because the environment changed very slowly. It took tens of thousands of years for there to be significant changes in the environment, and biological evolution would keep pace. But then, and about 200 million years ago, uh, mammals appeared, little rodent-like creatures. They had a new part of their brain called the neocortex. At that time, it was the size of a postage stamp, as thin as a postage stamp. It was on the outside surface of the brain, but it could do hierarchical thinking, which means that these rodents could think in a hierarchical fashion. They could learn new skills and actually change the behavior. If something went wrong, they could actually adjust to it very quickly. It allowed them to think in a more flexible manner. It didn't really matter much. So your law of uh, accelerating returns actually began 200 million years ago? Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, there's roots. It applies to biological evolution, although it's very slow. But you see uh, pattern recognition beginning then as well. Well, yes. I mean, the neocortex is based on pattern recognition. But the point I wanted to make is that 65 million years ago, something happened, which is called the crustaceous extinction event. And we see... There's still debate as to what it was, but we see evidence everywhere in the world. If you go down, there's a layer of sediment reflecting 65 million years ago that showed so there was some sudden chaotic uh, cataclysmic change to the environment. We think it has to do with the meteor, but there was a, an event that changed the environment in days or weeks. Uh, so these animals that could not change their behavior, non-mammalian species, died out, not all of them, but Tens of thousands of species died out, and the mammals took over their ecological niche. And so to anthropomorphize, biological evolution said, hey, this neocortex is pretty good stuff, and it started growing it relative to the rest of the brain as mammals develop. And by the time you get to primates, it's no longer this thin, well, it's still thin, but it's no longer this flat covering. It's now got all these convolutions and fissures, basically to increase its surface area. And even though it's still thin, and the human being, it's about the size of a table napkin. It's as, still as thin as a table napkin, but it's got all these convolutions, and it comprises now 80% of the brain by mass. And it does hierarchical thinking. And it basically consists of 300 million pattern recognizers. That's the essence of, of the thesis. So you really have to look at that in order to understand where we are now. I mean, that's, is this where... You turned in your, your effort to uh, do what you call reverse engineering the brain. You had to choose something to. Well, actually, to find a way. the evidence comes from many different sources. It's not that there's one way to do it. People say, oh, the Blue Brain Project, where they're simulating the brain at the molecular level and they're scaling up. They did one neuron, then a thousand neurons, then a million, then a billion. They're scaling up, they hope by 2023 to do a whole brain at the molecular level, uh, that's one approach. I think we need to use all kinds of evidence. Some you mentioned, like studying language, which is what the human brain does, and so we can learn about it from its behavior. I have some thought experiments in the book. I have a lot of recent neuroscience in the book. The best evidence actually came out in the months that I was wrapping up the book. Hmm. I have evidence from the world of artificial intelligence which doesn't prove how the brain works, except that it does show 
certain techniques that work, and so at least provide hypotheses about how certain things might work in the brain. For example? <coughs> well, uh, a technique that has become quite dominant in artificial intelligence, uh, which I helped pioneer in the 80s and 90s, is called hierarchical hidden Markov models. It's, it works similarly to what I've been describing, in that you have these models which are different pattern recognizers, and they're organized in a hierarchy. And they've taken over speech recognition. That's how we did speech recognition. Other techniques didn't work very well. Um, we did early natural language understanding. Speech synthesis is done that way. Character recognition now is done, all, is done that way. And I maintain, in the, and I describe how that works, and I maintain that this is uh, very mathematically similar to what the neocortex is doing, except that these early experiments, the hierarchy was fixed. We had a certain level of pattern recognizers that would deal with acoustic features, and they would feed up to phoneme recognizers, and they would feed up to word recognizers, and they would feed up to phrase recognizers. Uh, the actual neocortex builds this structure itself, isn't organized quite that orderly, because it may find exceptions and it may build different types of hierarchies, and it, it goes on for many dozens of levels of, of uh, abstraction. Uh, but the key is that the actual modules, these little recognizers, uh, that let's say recognize, oh, she's pretty, or that's funny, uh, are the same basic method as the ones that recognize, oh, that's a crossbar and a capital A. You probably think that you know, these high-level ones are much more complicated. They're only more complicated in that they sit on top of this grand hierarchy. And there are actual physical connections building this hierarchy. That, that is how the neocortex works. It actually builds these so connections. So they're only more important because they're using more of the information that comes Ex up exactly. that far. I, what does all this mean for us, though? I, obviously, you went into a discussion of this. But many of the, many of the things that you talk about um, leap out of this. You're talking about uh, biological changes to human beings that, uh, that might come out of this. Uh, the way in which once you've reversed, reverse engineered the, the way the human mind works, we can assist the way the, the human mind works. And that's where, well, well, as a futurist, you really begin to build. There are three benefits to reverse engineering the human brain. Uh, one is to do a better job of fixing it. Um, and we're already putting, for example, computers inside, uh, connected into the brain for Parkinson's patients. The latest version allows you to download new software to the computer that, in your body that's connected into the brain from outside the patient. New York Times had an article expressing concern about people hacking into the software that people are downloading into their brains. Uh, so doing a better job of fixing the brain is one objective. Another is to have biologically inspired algorithms or methods to build intelligent machines in a like fashion. Uh, it's actually, if you will, accidental that the technique that, has, that is very popular in artificial intelligence is similar to what actually takes place in the human brain. It's not a complete accident. I think they both evolved. One evolved in the, in the field of artificial intelligence and one evolved in biological evolution because that method works. But as we really gain, gain better models and really precise understanding of how the human brain 
creates intelligence and does intelligent tasks, we can build machines with those insights and then use them to expand our own intelligence. I mean, as I mentioned, I felt part of my brain went on strike with that SOPA strike. We're already expanding our brain. I mean, this makes me smarter. Uh, ultimately, it will go inside our bodies and brains. Uh, shrinking in size is another exponential Phenomena, these will be the size of blood cells in the 2030s, and we'll be putting them inside our brains. There are, a couple, of, there are a couple of strains that go out of that, though. One is, is, uh, is technically, and I think all of us get a little excited when you talk about putting computers inside, but the other is what that means to us. We've all accepted Facebook. Uh, we've accepted Wikipedia as a source of somewhat questionable information, but essential information. Well, search, search engines are amazing. I mean, you can really find, you know, I've got some, I heard something about some professor that did some work in some area, and boom, you get it in seconds. You find anything uh, in the world of knowledge with, with search engines, and they're going to become more and more intelligent. So we, we've expanded our brains. We have uh, offloaded or outsourced our cultural, personal, historical, and cultural memories to computers. But ultimately, we will, we will expand this sort of limitation of 300 million pattern recognizers in the neocortex. That's a lot from one perspective, and that that was the enabling factor that permitted humans to create art and science and language and so forth. But it's also a big limitation. And just as the significant thing about computation is not what I can do with this, because this actually doesn't do very much. But when I do anything interesting, like a search or language translation or ask it a question, uh, it doesn't take place in this box. It goes out to the cloud. This is a gateway to the cloud. We will put those gateways to the cloud in our own brain. We will create synthetic neocortexes. I'm working on that right now. And ultimately, we'll have gateways right in our brain so that we won't be limited to 300 million. Maybe you need a billion for a tenth of a second, just as you might need a million computers to answer a complicated search query for a tenth of a second. So your neocortex, in some ways, won't be just yours anymore. You'll be using uh, a web. Well, I would the, say it is yours, you but you're describe. bringing up an important <laughs> question about things like privacy and uh, if. Like but that is what you're talking your personal about. You're, you're email, connected your, to the internet. Your photographs, are they yours? I, I think they are, uh, but they're out in the cloud, most likely. And if they're not, I would advise you actually to put them there because uh, they're safest there. Uh, we ultimately will do a lot of our thinking in the cloud. We will at least expand our biological limitations by doing very similar thinking to the core of what the neocortex is all about, expanding it into the cloud directly from our brains. But even if we're using physical devices that are outside our bodies and brains, it's still part of who we are. It'll still be us making those connections. Right. And so the physical neocortex you have will still be overseeing the, the way in which all of this is oh, drawn together? I wouldn't together. say that necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would say that we will become a hybrid of biological and non-biological intelligence. And I'd say we are that already. We are a a biological machine civilization. Can, can you tell me, I'm, I'm curious, because I read about these, these nanobots that you're talking about that will, 
be electronic additions to our human biology? How do they get connected? Well, they're communicating wirelessly. I mean, how, how is this connected, uh, this pervasive wireless communication? They'll... I look at my phone to read what's on the screen. I mean, is there a physical connection? Are these going to be, are these the size of blood cells? Are they, yeah, uh, I mean, are they we... connected to my retina? Are they? I mean, right now there are computers that maybe that are pea size, not blood cell size, that are put inside human bodies and connected into the brain uh, for serious medical conditions. Uh, and uh, because they require surgery, we limit them to serious medical conditions. When we can introduce them non-invasively, uh, there'll be less of a barrier to using them. One initial application will be just to expand our immune system. We have little devices, they're called white blood cells, that are intelligent. <laughs> they detect friend from, they can tell friend from foe, they can kill pathogens, but they're, they have, and they're, it's great. We wouldn't last very long without them, but they also have many limitations. For example, it doesn't recognize cancer. It thinks, oh, that's me. Uh, sometimes it thinks that you are the enemy and that those are autoimmune disorders. We can actually fix those problems and created a, a nanobot-based immune system that would you know, virtually wipe out disease. They can go inside the brain and provide these gateways to expand beyond the 300 million pattern recognizers. So you need a billion, you need 10 billion you know, for a few seconds or whatever, you'll have that available to you. So it, it, it isn't, I guess the, the, the thing that bothers a lot of people when they think about this potential future is how it's going to change who we are. This is a discussion to some extent of what we are or how we are. Uh, well, I don't actually like the term transhumanism because it implies the concern that you're articulating that we're going to transcend our humanity uh, and it's defining humanity as our sort of biological selves. Uh, I define humanity differently as we are the species that seeks to transcend our limitations. Ever since we saw some low-hanging or high-hanging fruit we couldn't reach, we created a tool to expand, extend our physical reach. And, and then we use those tools to create more sophisticated tools. And we've been expanding our reach physically and mentally for a long time. And we're going to continue in that path. We are the, the species that changes who we are. Life expectancy was 20 a thousand years ago. That was actually a good idea because there wasn't enough food for people to, to you know, linger for very long. It's like it's 37 and 1800. So we, we've been expanding our reach physically, biologically, in terms of health, in terms of intellect. I mean, we couldn't handle the vast amount of knowledge we have without you know, the, the mind expanders and computers we have to organize the it all. Well, it's also, to some extent, problem solving. I was looking at your website, and there was an article about a recent experiment, a limited experiment so far, because they don't know exactly how well it's going to work in which they, uh, they, they stimulate the retina of blind patients with Braille dots. Uh, and the, the logic seems to be the, right there when you, when you read the article, but then you realize that nobody thought about the fact that to blind people reading, who've never, to blind people who've never seen those crossbars on the A, Braille is the reality of reading. So stimulating the, the retina directly 
Well, there are a lot of experiments of hooking up uh, electronic systems to our bodies and our brains. If a blind person has a working retina, but there's some other physiological problems, then that's an approach. There have been approaches of actually feeding signals directly into the brain uh, by actually having connections on the neocortex. Uh, those have worked fairly well. We've run into bandwidth problems. Uh, so it's a complicated area. Uh, if we actually understand how the neocortex works, we can do a much better job. Um, th the brain is actually self-organizing. The, the visual... Neuroscience has been very fond of uh, specialization, so that they see if there's um, an accident and one little area called the fusiform gyrus is knocked out and suddenly somebody can't recognize faces. They go, ah, that region is responsible for recognizing faces. Of course, then that person can learn recognizing faces using a different region. One of the recent uh, pieces of evidence I cite in the book is what happens to all these areas that are supposedly devoted to visual information in a congenitally blind person? Do they sit there doing nothing because there's no visual information coming in? It turns out that these are only visual areas if the person has vision. So, in fact, the information does flow in a certain way because the optic nerve spills into V1, which then handles very primitive visual recognitions like crossbars and capital A's and edges and things like that. Uh, the frontal cortex, which deals with very high-level language concepts, actually takes over V1 and uses it for high-level language concepts mm -hmm. rather than low-level visual concepts, showing, f for one thing, that there's a universal algorithm that can be used at any level of the hierarchy. It also suggests that we have very flexible minds, up to a point anyway, because I, th I think also, didn't you say that uh, when that part of the brain is called upon to do something it was never intended to, well, or if, um, if someone is blinded partway through life? Right. I mean, we, one of the reasons children can learn languages and other skills so easily is they have all this virgin neocortex. They have not filled up these 300 million recognizers uh, at age five. However, at age 20, typically, we have filled it up. That doesn't mean we can't learn new things, but we actually need but to... But it's harder, isn't it? It's harder because all the regions are doing something. We have to actually give up in from old information. There's a lot of redundancy. So like a crossbar to capital A, I don't have one recognized. I probably have 500 that recognize that. And I could give up 100 or 200 of those and still recognize capital A's uh, and then use that for something else. But not, a, not everyone is actually good at that skill of of actually forgetting things. So if you knock out a whole region of the neocortex, it can use another region to learn, relearn those, new, those old skills. You have to relearn them. But that new region isn't sitting there doing nothing. It's not just there as a backup ready to jump into so service. So something has to be jettisoned so that it can get... Is this why I have increasing memory problems? <laughs> Am I... <laughs> well, one reason is we, we have a filled up neocortex. Uh, in fact, as we get to our 40s, 50s, 60s, we not only have used it all up, we've also expanded it by reducing this redundancy factor as much as is fruitful to do that. 
So we really have to, you know, forget old things to learn new things, and it becomes more. That's one of the reasons it becomes more difficult. Um, but you know, you can do that. The best way to to do that is to actually continue to challenge your mind. And uh, yeah. but it's so complicated. I remember some years ago reading an article about uh, storage of words in our brains, and uh, the word bridge, for instance is stored, this article suggested, in four different places. Uh, it's used, it's stored once when spoken, referring to a span over a river, uh, and once when spoken metaphorically about bridging a, a gap. It's stored once in each of those cases as a written thing. So you have four. At least, at least four. Four. And there's, and there's probably Figures. many other variations. In fact, the concept of a bridge we're going to have thousands, tens of thousands of associations. There'll be specific bridges we know about. And uh, well, even the metaphorical idea of, of bridging from one idea to another, we'll have many examples. And that concept will be linked to all of these different examples. And uh, that's the beauty of the neocortex, is that it is a grand uh, linked structure where we can we don't just learn bridge as one logical concept. It's, very, it's a very rich concept because we actually probably have tens of thousands or more associations with it. One of the things that you do talk about in How to Create a Mind is uh, the benefits that technology may give us in terms of memory. You even talk about the possibility of increasing our memory, of having uh, having prosthetic chips, I suppose you'd call them, that, uh, that would allow us to store information that our neocortex doesn't have room for? Well, it's not really so much memory. We've already greatly expanded our memory. I mean, that, that is what these devices do. I mean, in terms of our own personal memories uh, and the sort of universal shared memory, we have access to vast amounts of information and knowledge which we can call up, and we might be dimly aware, we kind of remember having seen a movie 20 years ago, but we can then tune into the information about that and it refreshes you know, what little we remember on our own. So I mean, these are definitely memory expanders and, are, and we're able to have a seamless uh, expansion from what we might conceivably remember with our own brains and, and the kind of collective shared memory and knowledge of, of the whole species. But they don't work the, in the, quite the same way our minds do in terms of memory, do they? No, they work differently and, and in a way that's uh, actually more flexible because we can't actually do the kinds of things, say, that Google can do. We can't search our memory uh, as, as easily and as flexibly. I mean, Watson, which uh, defeated the best two human players at Jeopardy, understands human language fairly well. It can deal with these very convoluted uh, Jeopardy queries. Uh, but and it got its knowledge by reading Wikipedia, and if it, if you were to look at how well it could comprehend one page in Wikipedia, it's not as good as you or me. But it read all of Wikipedia, has per, total recall of it. It read several other encyclopedias, a total of 200 million pages, and remembers it all equally and can, and can search through it in three seconds. Uh, and therefore was able to do a better job than the best two human players put together. And it is dealing with human uh, language. It, it was not, you know, the 
the knowledge to know that that queen with blonde braids in the 16th century uh, was from Holland, you know, wasn't pre-programmed in some computer language. It, it got that by reading Wikipedia. So there was some comprehension there. Some of the critics of your studies suggest that Watson isn't, uh, doesn't understand anything. Watson just is able to... Well, one, there's two criticisms. One is, oh, it's just doing statistical uh, tricks with language, by which people think that it's just kind of playing games or uh, doing statistics with sequences of words. But actually, it's using a hierarchical method something like what we were talking about, hierarchical hidden Markov models, or something equivalent to that, where there's a big hierarchical network of probabilities uh, in a very vast network. And it's called a statistical approach, but it's a very sophisticated one. And if that does not constitute true understanding, then humans have no true understanding either, because that is how our own brains work. And then uh, there's a misunderstanding that all the knowledge in Watson was sort of pre-programmed by the engineers in a computer language. It, it actually got it by sitting down, metaphorically, and, <laughs> and, uh, and reading Wikipedia, and read it very quickly. In a matter of weeks, it read the whole thing, and has it now stored and can access all of its knowledge in three seconds. And don't we wish we had that kind of access to well, information? We do, we we do. do but it's external <laughs> at this point. But, to me, that's a distinction without, without that's a, a difference. difference without a distinction. Uh, but I wonder whether it is, because it comes back to this whole business of memory. Memory is important to me. I mean, I watched my father, who was extraordinarily intelligent, lose much of his memory and his ability to access it as he grew older. And I saw occasional sadness as he was aware that there were things he had known but didn't know. Well, neurological anymore. diseases and it's a whole different discussion. We're learning about the bio, uh, the, the information processes underlying these biological processes. But basically, diseases like Alzheimer's are pervasively destroying the neocortex. And so they're learning the basis of thinking, uh, which, and our memories are in our neocortex. Uh, they are uh, also our skills, our personality, all of that actually gradually fades with a disease like Alzheimer's because the neocortex is basically disintegrating. So can we, as we look at these, uh, at these technological changes that are so rapidly coming toward us, change ourselves biologically to... Uh, Mr. Futurist, are, are we going to be better biologically because we're better technologically? Well, not principally. I mean, we can keep our biology going. That's bio biotechnology. So that, you know, things like Alzheimer's is a certain genetic defect and a certain process gets underway that's destructive. And, this, and that's, we see that kind of process in any disease. Uh, atherosclerosis leads to heart attacks and strokes, and that's a progressive process. We're learning the genetic factors, and it's basically, these are all information processes. Cancer's very much that way with cancer stem cells that are with a genetic error that causes them to then create cancer cells that reproduce without end. Uh, we're learning how these processes work, and we'll be able to uh, reprogram them away from disease. So we will be better biologically in that sense. But we're not going to profoundly change the architecture of the human brain to make 
instead of 300 million, 3 billion or 30 billion panel recognizers. The only way to do that is to, act, is to hook it up to a, a non-biological extension. And we're doing that now with these kinds of devices. These devices are going to get more and more intimate. Uh, things like Google Glass will you know, replace this with yeah. basically having images directly written on your retina and so on. So where are we on the line, do you think? Where, I, I want your, your, your five-year prediction, your 20-year prediction. Where are we in this process now? How much do we understand and how much more do we have to learn? About the brain? About the brain. Well, I think we have a pretty good idea of the basic algorithms, enough to create systems that won't yet be at human levels, but that will uh, be able to do some very impressive things. Because of this combination of combining some level of human understanding, and think of Watson as an example, it's not as good as humans on the page, but it can then apply that to, you know, uh, as it turns out, uh, 200 million pages. <laughs> Uh, we can't do that. We don't have that, that scale. Uh, that kind of uh, capability, uh, IBM is now programming Watson to read all medical literature, every medical journal article, all medical blogs, and be a medical consultant and diagnostician to help doctors, because they can't read this vast amount of material that's coming out, uh, you know, thousands of articles a day. Um, five years from now, we'll have search engines that are not just doing word searches. They will actually have read these billions of pages out on the web for content and, and will understand them well enough to actually do conceptual searches. Uh, they'll be listening in on our conversations if you let them, which you will, because the benefits will be profound. Uh, verbal conversations, everything you write, everything you read, it will really get to know you and it'll be constantly helping you. So, oh, you know, yesterday you were expressing interest in some way of getting this particular supplement, phosphatidylcholine, into the cell membrane. Here's a study that came out 12 minutes ago on just that subject. <laughs> of, uh, or it sees you struggling with something. Oh, that actress is, uh, is so-and-so and give you information about it. And it'll pop up in your visual field of view. It will be an augmented reality. You look at someone, it'll give you information about them. Tell you what their name is. That would be a killer app. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's five years. God, 20 years, you're talking, you know, 20, the 2030s, now computers really have matched human intelligence and will be married with this vast scale and speed, which will also be greater than it is today, but we'll be using them to expand our own intelligence. And in the 2030s, we'll be putting them in our bodies and brains to make us healthier and smarter. This is the beginning of another entire conversation, but we've reached the end of this one. So, Ray Kurzweil, thank you so very much yeah, for being with pleasure. us.